Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A heads up, this episode contains discussion about suicide. Please listen with care. The afternoon started like many others for two young men in the city of Sparks, a suburb just east of Reno, Nevada. The 18- and 20-year-old best friends were hanging out, drinking beer, smoking weed, and listening to heavy metal. As the music played, the pair reportedly flew into a fit of violence, punching and kicking holes in walls, destroying everything in the room. They grabbed a shotgun that was in the house and ran to a nearby playground. Sitting on a merry-go-round, one of them used the gun to end his life. The other attempted to do the same, but survived, only to undergo three years of painful reconstructive surgery before he died as well. The families of the young man tried to make sense of the tragedy. In their search for answers, they initiated an unprecedented lawsuit that blamed an unlikely culprit for their loss. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. In this episode, we look back at a court case that investigated the use of subliminal messages in music and questioned whether the British band Judas Priest was responsible for the deaths of two young men. This is Heavy Metal on Trial. By the beginning of the 1990s, heavy metal music was entering a period of change. The hair or glam metal movement, which had dominated the late 80s, was on its last legs as grunge music waited in the wings. Heavy metal subgenres like thrash and groove metal survived and even thrived. But the term heavy metal would eventually be used less and less to describe the aggressive and power-driven music that had been arguably the most commercially successful genre of rock music. Judas Priest, with their head-to-toe leather and studs and churning, riff-filled songs, played a massive role in making heavy metal the mainstream success it was in the 80s. Their sixth album, British Steel, released in 1980, marked the beginning of a new wave of British heavy metal, forging a template and setting the bar for countless bands that came after them, including Iron Maiden and Saxon. The album propelled the band into the North American market and got radio airplay with songs like Breaking the Law and Living After Midnight. But it wasn't until 1982, when Judas Priest released their album Screaming for Vengeance, that the British band gained mainstream North American popularity. The heavy metal anthem, You've Got Another Thing Coming, helped the band sell more than 2 million copies of the album and turned the guys into massive rock stars with headbanger fans around the world. James Vance and Ray Belknap were two of those fans. The teenagers met in 1980 when they were in middle school. They developed a friendship so strong, they called it a brotherhood. If one swore that he would do something, the other would follow suit. Neither one would let the Brotherhood down. James and Ray lived and breathed Judas Priest. They bought their records, studied the lyrics, and attended shows when the band passed through Reno, Nevada. On December 23, 1985, they spent six hours drinking beer, smoking weed, and listening to Judas Priest music in Ray's bedroom. 
Both of them had dropped out of high school in grade 10. And ever since, they drifted from job to job, spending much of their free time drinking, doing drugs, and listening to heavy metal. On that particular day, they were listening to Judas Priest's 1978 album, Stained Class, which Ray had given to James as an early Christmas present. The album is considered one of the most important in the trajectory of heavy metal as a genre, second only to Black Sabbath's debut album in 1970. A review on Loudwire says, quote, The twin lead guitars of Glenn Tipton and K.K. Downing, Rob Halford's siren-like wail, and the breakneck speed drumming by their newest member, Les Binks, were carving metal's future. Seven years after that record came out, James and Ray caught a beer buzz in a suburb of Reno and got amped up from the music. James described it as a feeling of power. The young men tried to interpret the words to the music together. On the song Beyond the Realms of Death, Rob Halford sings, Keep the world with all its sin, it's not fit for living in. James said the line made him want to stop living, and Ray agreed. They swore on their brotherhood to, quote, see what's next, meaning they should see what death was like. According to a deposition by James, after the pact was made, they felt a tremendous rush of power and began tearing Ray's room apart. They broke holes in the walls, threw books, ripped the bookshelves from the wall, trashing everything except the stereo. When Ray's mom got home around 5 p.m. and heard the commotion, she began pounding on the bedroom door. In response, the boys jumped out the first floor bedroom window, taking a shotgun with them. They ran to a nearby playground at a church and sat down on one of those old-school metal merry-go-rounds and together began chanting the words, Do it. Within minutes, Ray used the gun to end his life. Then James reloaded the gun and tried to honor the Brotherhood by fulfilling the pact with his best friend. But the shotgun pellets missed his brain. He fell face forward on the ground, where police found him after a neighbor called 911. Raymond Belknap died instantly. He was 18 years old. James Vance survived. The next year, in 1986, the families of James and Ray filed a lawsuit against Judas Priest and their label, CBS Records. The families claimed the hypnotic beat of the music, combined with the lyrics, created a deadly and irresistible message. The civil suit charged both the band and the record label of being liable for the manufacture and marketing of a faulty product, as well as negligence and intentional and reckless misconduct. Initially, the suit didn't get a lot of attention outside of the Reno area because this wasn't the first time that rock music had been blamed for influencing violence. Similar suits filed in the past had always been dismissed on the ground that the artist's music and lyrics were protected by the First Amendment, which guarantees U.S. citizens freedom of speech. For example, in December 1985, just before James and Ray made their suicide pact, the parents of a California teen filed a lawsuit against Ozzy Osbourne and CBS Records. 19-year-old John McCollum shot himself in October 1984 while listening to the rocker's song, Suicide Solution. Suicide 
The lawsuit said lyrics like that helped push the teenager over the brink of depression to suicide. And lawyers argued suicide solution should not be protected by the First Amendment because it solicits a crime. Ozzy's wife and manager, Sharon Osbourne, called the lawsuit ridiculous and added, quote, I'm glad the boy never read Shakespeare in school because he would have shot himself years earlier. Everyone was killing everyone in Shakespeare. In fact, according to Ozzy, the song Suicide Solution doesn't promote suicide. It's actually a warning to people about the dangers of drinking too much. Written in response to the death of Ozzy's friend, Bon Scott, ACDC's original lead singer, who died of acute alcohol poisoning. The lawsuit against Ozzy and CBS Records was dismissed before it even went to trial. A Los Angeles judge said the parents of John McCollum failed to prove why Ozzy's song should be exempt from the First Amendment. So it was expected the case against Judas Priest would follow the same trajectory. And it almost did. The Nevada judge overseeing the case was preparing to dismiss the lawsuit on the grounds the band and the record label were protected by the First Amendment. But then, at the last minute, lawyers for the families changed strategy, revising their claim and adding a whole other element to the case. They claimed, in addition to the hypnotic beat of the music and the overt lyrics, there were also subliminal messages hidden in songs on stained glass. Messages that could only be heard by the subconscious. And because the issue of whether subliminal messages are protected by the First Amendment had never been addressed by the courts, the judge agreed to proceed with the lawsuit. The lawyers for the Vance and Belknap families said they had hired experts to go through the album with a fine-tooth comb, and they'd uncovered hidden audio messages. For example, in this song, Better By You, Better Than Me, the experts said the phrase, do it, is repeated throughout the song, at an audio level so low that it can only be picked up by the unconscious mind. You may remember that James said that he and Ray had chanted that phrase before attempting suicide. The lawyers for the Vance and Belknap families also said experts had heard other messages when the record was played backwards. Here's one of the experts speaking to the local media about the findings. Okay, the first line of Red Forward uh, says, New arms into adverb bliss. Now, when you take that line out and play it backwards, you're getting this. Sing my evil spirit. Wilson Brian Key, who is president of Media Probe, a nonprofit research and education organization, also claimed the word suicide is hidden in the artwork on the front of the Stained Glass album. Meanwhile, lawyers for the band and their record company denied categorically that secret messages existed on any Judas Priest recordings. They said the suicide pact was caused by a variety of other factors, including alleged drug and alcohol abuse, and a history of behavioral problems, including a predisposition toward violence. The decision to proceed to trial was surprising, and suddenly the story became big news, receiving national and international attention. It was the first case in the US in which a jury would decide if a creative art form like music 
could be held liable for damages resulting from its content. And if the lawsuit was successful, it could have wide-reaching impacts on the entertainment industry as a whole. The belief that subliminal or hidden messages can influence a person's actions rose to prominence in the 1950s. That's when a market researcher famously claimed that by flashing the words eat popcorn and drink Coca-Cola for a fraction of a second during a movie, he significantly increased the sale of snacks. Five years later, though, he admitted that he faked the study. But by then, the perception that secret messages could unknowingly manipulate people had taken hold. In music, the idea of hidden subliminal messages rose to prominence in the 1960s through something called backmasking. The premise is simple. You record a message the right way and then replay it backwards. That way, it sounds like gibberish when you play the song forward, but when you reverse the track, you can hear the actual words. The first popular song to do this was Rain by The Beatles, which was released in 1966 as the B-side to Paperback Writer. When it's played forward toward the end of the song, you can hear John Lennon singing what sounds like gibberish. But when you play that same section in reverse, you hear this. The band had simply used a vocal snippet of Lennon's singing played in reverse because they thought it sounded cool. There wasn't an important secret message embedded in the song for listeners. But once word got out that they had done this, fans started looking for backward messages in other songs, leading to the belief that the message, Paul is dead, was hidden in the song Revolution 9. And the phenomenon wasn't limited to the Beatles. Music lovers were looking for backward messages everywhere, slowly spinning their turntables in reverse and listening closely for a secret phrase. Some musicians like Jimi Hendrix and ELO played around with the trick, purposely incorporating backmasking in their music. And Pink Floyd had some fun with the tactic on their classic album, The Wall by placing a backward message on the song Empty Spaces that said, congratulations, you discovered the secret message. There were tons of rumors about other messages that in the end were mostly just that, rumors. Bands like Led Zeppelin, Styx, and the Eagles were accused of embedding satanic messages in their songs, something they denied. And the Queen song Another One Bites the Dust allegedly contained a backward message encouraging listeners to smoke marijuana. Even if these messages did exist, the bigger question was, can your subconscious mind interpret them and can they make you act a certain way? These were the questions that the Judas Priest trial was expected to answer when it finally got underway. While the lawsuit was working its way through the justice system, James Vance continued to undergo reconstructive surgery to repair the immense damage done to his face from the shotgun pellets. Following over 140 hours of surgery, he remained severely disfigured, and he was haunted by the memories of what happened that night. Then, in the fall of 1988, he checked into a Nevada psychiatric ward to be treated for depression. On November 23rd, he called his mom around 10 p.m., she said he sounded fine and excited about coming home the next day for Thanksgiving. But James never went home again. 
Five hours later, he suffered cardiac arrest and slipped into a coma from a combination of an accidental overdose of prescription drugs and an obstructed airway caused by his injuries. James died six days later. He was 23 years old. Back in court, the final hurdle was cleared before the case would move to trial. In August 1989, nearly four years after James and Ray's suicide pact, the judge in the case entered uncharted legal waters when he ruled that subliminal messages are not protected by the First Amendment. The ruling set the stage for an unprecedented trial that would be watched closely by not only heavy metal fans around the world, but the entire music and entertainment industry. When the trial finally got underway on July 16, 1990, a small group of metalheads gathered outside the Washoe County District Courthouse in Reno, Nevada. With music blaring from the back of a pickup truck, they unfurled a banner that read, alcohol, drugs, and a 12-gauge shotgun killed those poor kids, not metal music. When Judas Priest arrived at the courthouse, a group of fans, some waving copies of the album Stained Class, swarmed band members hoping to get an autograph. Singer Rob Halford, along with guitarists K.K. Downing and Glenn Tipton, as well as bass player Ian Hill, were dressed in dark business suits instead of the usual black leather outfits they wore on stage. They looked on silently as the lawyers for the families of James Vance and Raymond Belknap outlined their reasons for the multi-million dollar lawsuit. Lawyer Vivian Lynch argued that the band and CBS Records deliberately implanted subconscious messages in their music to influence adolescents. And in this case, she said those messages were a trigger that pushed the two boys over the edge into eternity. The court heard that the motive for inserting message into the album was profit from record sales. The lawyer for Judas Priest and their record company adamantly maintained in her opening statement that there was no subliminal content on Stained Class. And Sue Ellen Fullstone said, even if there was, there is no evidence that the subconscious mind is able to sort out the backward messages so the conscious mind can absorb them. The trial was huge news in Reno and beyond. Camera crews and reporters from all three major networks were on hand at the Washoe Courthouse, as well as at least a dozen print reporters, including some from as far away as London, England. It was a circus atmosphere. There's no question about that. And, and the you know, there was media from all over. Court TV was there in its capacity. There was local news. There was so, a reporter from the Village Voice, which was a big deal at the time. You know, there was, you know, it was, it was reported everywhere. And in that way that we now know where everybody's hanging on every new development. That's David Van Taylor. He began working on a documentary about the case a couple of years before the trial when he first heard about the case. Basically, what first drew me to it was the absurdity of the idea that somebody would blame uh, their child's suicide or attempted suicide on music. Later, I came to, you know, see the tragedy in the whole thing more than the absurdity or along with the absurdity. The lives of James and Ray before the suicide pact was a big focus of the trial. James's mom, Phyllis Vance, was called to testify and described her son as a well-dispositioned child until he fell under the influence of Judas Priest's music. But under cross-examination by the lawyer representing Judas Priest and the record company, Phyllis was forced to acknowledge that James had a history of violence against her and that his childhood had been plagued by behavior problems and a troubled family life. Mm -hmm. 
David Van Taylor says some of the trial wasn't very easy to watch. I never wavered in my belief that it wasn't the music that had led them to do this. But, you know, it was very, it's very painful to watch the lawyers for Judas Priest and CBS Records raking the families over the coals of, you know, to, to, to disprove their denial, essentially. Central to the family's case was the possible existence of subliminal messages in the album Stained Class. And that meant playing it in court for Judge Jerry Carr Whitehead, who was overseeing the trial and would make the ultimate decision on whether Judas Priest and CBS Records were liable for the deaths of James and Ray. Judge Whitehead sat stoically as the song Better By You, Better Than Me pulsated through the courtroom. As a sound expert for the families, pointed out where the do-it phrases were embedded in the music. Spectators in the court strained to hear the alleged secret messages, and guitarist K.K. Downing occasionally mouthed the lyrics and shook his blonde heavy metal hair as the song was played multiple times. Sometimes it was played at normal speed on a turntable, other times it was slowed down or put through electronic filters on a computer, which was cutting-edge technology at the time. William Nickloff, a sound expert from Sacramento, testified that after studying the 24-track master tape of the song, he discovered that pieces of the do-it message were scattered over 11 different tracks. He said when played together at the end of a drum beat, they produced the subliminal message. And in his opinion, it was no accident. But another witness, this one for the band and CBS Records, said that even if a secret do-it message existed, it wouldn't matter. Dr. Donald Lund, a high-profile Stanford University psychiatrist, said the mind is incapable of understanding subliminal messages. Despite his death, James Vance weighed in on the issue. In a sworn statement made before he died, James said he believed a suicide message was hidden in the music and that the music and lyrics stimulated his emotions and train of thought. Filmmaker David Van Taylor believes that James' decision to blame the music and the band was likely out of desperation. Because there he was, having done this terrible thing to himself, having witnessed this terrible thing that his closest friend did, that his you know, feeling guilty about it, survivor guilt. They agreed that they were going to have a suicide pact and James emerged alive out of it. So, you know, I think he had to explain all that to himself and to his mother on whom he was, you know, very dependent and to Ray's mother. On July 31st, 1990, 12 days into the trial, the moment many observers had been waiting for took place. Rob Halford, lead singer for Judas Priest, took the stand. Halford, who was dressed in a conservative business suit and was soft-spoken, could have been a corporate executive instead of one of the most famous heavy metal singers in the world. But spectators in the court did get a glimpse of his stage persona when Halford was asked to sing some of the lyrics from the song Better By You, Better Than Me. That's the song that allegedly had the hidden message that pushed James and Ray over the edge. Halford told the court that what they were hearing were essentially his own exhalation of breath at the end of a line and the sound of a guitar. Filmmaker David Van Taylor says it was pretty surreal watching Halford testify and sing his lyrics in a courtroom. And I think it was surreal for him. You know, when you 
sing in a certain way for your own artistic purposes, you don't think that someday you're going to be under oath on a witness stand explaining why that is, you know. I let out a certain breath at the end of my, you know, of a phrase or whatever. While on the stand, Halford once again denied categorically that a do-it message was added to Better By You, Better Than Me, or any song on Stained Class. But in a surprising twist, Halford did admit inserting a backward message on a different album in the past. Halford testified that he inserted the phrase, in the dead of the night, love bites, backward on the song Love Bites from the 1984 album Defenders of the Faith. The backward phrase plays simultaneously with the same words recorded forward and just sounds like garbled speech. When Judge Whitehead asked the singer why he would do that, Halford said, quote, when you're composing songs, you're always looking for new ideas and new sounds. The trial continued for a total of 19 days. More than 40 witnesses were called. Many of them sound experts and psychologists asked to discuss whether auditory subliminal messages could influence a person. In the end, that particular issue didn't matter because Judge Whitefield ruled that there was no evidence of any subliminal messages, forward or backward, on the album Stained Class. In his judgment, he stated the words do it or on stained class by a chance combination of sounds, not human speech. Judas Priest and their record label were therefore not liable in the deaths of James Vance and Raymond Belknap. On the issue of whether Judge Whitefield believed the human mind could interpret subliminal messages, he wrote that no tests or scientific evidence was presented to substantiate the issue one way or the other. Even though the families lost the case, James's mom, Phyllis Vance, was happy that the dangers of heavy metal music had made national news because, in her words, teenagers are tired of their minds being manipulated. As for Rob Halford, following the verdict, he had mixed emotions about the trial and the outcome. And he said the band might, quote, bear the mental scars for many, many years to come. In fact, David Van Taylor says the case had a profound effect on the band and Rob Halford in particular. Because I think that, you know, they had not ever peered that deeply into the lives of their fans, nor had they had to ponder that deeply their own, what their responsibility for their fans, to their fans is. In 2015, Halford told Rolling Stone magazine the whole experience was incredibly emotional for him. He said what he really wanted to do was go to the mothers and give them a hug and say, I'm sorry for the loss of your kid. Let's go have a coffee and talk this over. Halford went on to say that one good thing did come from the trial. It showed the judge and the public that Judas Priest were a bunch of guys who could string sentences together and be logical and intelligent adding, we're not idiots and we never will be. In 2022, Judas Priest was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where Rob Halford, who came out as gay in 1998, told the crowd that everyone is welcome in the heavy metal community, no matter your sexual identity, what you look like, or what you believe in. The band continues to tour without Glenn Tipton, who has Parkinson's, and without K.K. Downing, who parted with his bandmates in 2011. Judas Priest is scheduled to play the Power Trip Metal Festival in California in October 2023, 
replacing Ozzy Osbourne, who pulled out for health reasons. Rock and roll may never die, but it definitely gets old, just like the rest of us. Thanks for joining us on this look back at heavy metal and subliminal messages. This episode is dedicated to Cheryl Marshall Kelly, one of the biggest Judas Priest fans at Applewood High School in the 80s. And thanks to her, I know way more Judas Priest lyrics than I ever wanted to. And a special thanks to David Van Taylor for making time to chat. His 1992 documentary on James Vance and the Judas Priest trial is called Dream Deceivers. It's available on Apple TV and Amazon. I highly recommend you check it out. It's a perfect little time capsule back to 1990. If you have an idea for an episode, please let me know. Just send a message on social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. You can also send an email to 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 